So glad you're here. So we are in the book of Matthew. We are in week six of our journey through the gospel of Matthew. And we are hitting uh, the kind of the first major section of discourse where Jesus is teaching, the red letters, right? That's what we're hitting this morning in chapter 5. But I want to summarize kind of what I let, where I left off last week, which not only gives us a nice transition into the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, but it kind of gives us an interpretive key to understand what it is Jesus is talking about, okay? Um, and so I'm just going to summarize it. This is, I'm going to summarize chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Um, in, the, in there, you see that John the Baptist is imprisoned, okay? And so this marks the end of John the Baptist's ministry and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, okay? And so there's this transition happening from John the Baptist. And remember, his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And we talked about what the kingdom of heaven is and John the Baptist a couple of weeks ago. And now Jesus is going to pick up that same message, that same tagline that John the Baptist has been using. Jesus is going to use it word for word, okay? And he is uh, directly nodding, winking at John the Baptist saying, I got it from here, okay? That's what he's doing. And he's saying to us, the message is consistent, not just from John the Baptist to him, but throughout the whole Old Testament. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he hands the baton over to Jesus, and there's continuity. Okay, it's very important when you start reading the Old Testament that you understand that. That little verse in Matthew is hugely important for how you look at the Old Testament. It is consistent, okay, all the way through to Jesus to us. So Jesus picks up that message. Matthew also tells us about Jesus gathering some disciples in Galilee. We see Peter and Andrew and James and John. We see a very quick story about them we aren't told how these disciples were able to so quickly just drop what they're doing and follow jesus was there some prior kind of connection with jesus like they had they been listening to his preaching and he they knew them or was this just this a miraculous thing where a strange man walks up and says follow me and there are no questions and they just know by the power of the Spirit to follow the guy. I don't know. I, we aren't told, okay, what was going on there. But that's what they did. The point is they dropped what they were doing, left their jobs, left their families, left their homes, abandoned everything to just follow Jesus. And following Jesus means obeying him, right? That's the important thing that Matthew is pointing out there. What if you made all your decisions based on how you could be most useful to the body of Christ? What if you, we actually lived this way? What if we all acted like missionaries? This is incredible. These guys didn't just follow him for three years and then leave and go back to work. They tried that, some of them. Their whole lives from this point to their eventual death was marked by a very simple thing, which is where he goes, I go. What he tells me to do, I'll do. In the same way that Jesus submitted himself to the Father, we've talked about that. They submitted themselves to Jesus, and their whole life after this point was different. And I wonder sometimes if we don't allow the world to kind of affect our decision-making where we add in stuff, 
Like, there's what Jesus wants me to do, how I can be useful in his mission, the Great Commission, right? That's the end of Matthew. And there's my career, and that's what kind of house I want to have. And there's this, and I'm going to mix all that in of equal importance to the first question, which is how can I be most useful in the kingdom of God? Where can I be most useful? That's, listen, that decision was how I ended up here with my family. <laughs> Years before this was a thing, me and my wife and family coming to Kernersville, she and I made a decision that we're, we're, gonna, we're willing to go anywhere, do anything, and we're going to make the decision solely based, not on career, not on money, not on housing, not on any of that, solely based on where can we be most useful. That's what we actually started asking. I go to my dad's like, where, where can we go? We'll go, I'll go to Hungary, I'll go to China, I'll learn whatever language I got to learn, even though I hate learning languages. I'll go anywhere, we'll do anything. We don't, I don't care about a title or any of that stuff. I just want to go, but if you, if there's a church plant somewhere and they're like, oh, we could just use like a couple that's just solid and mature and committed, we'll go there. Like, and that's, that question is what led us here. And I wonder sometimes if we all just started to think that way, what would happen? If we all acted like we were actually missionaries, whether it's right here, across the street, or in another place. And so it's really challenging, even though, even though Matthew doesn't give us the whole story, like, you know, you see in Luke and Mark, you see more details about more disciples and how that went down. I think it's important to pause there. And recognize what started this was a radical commitment to following Jesus, full stop. And so following this gathering of disciples in Galilee, the crowds begin to gather. You see this in verses 23 to 25, and that shows us that Jesus' popularity grew very quickly, which it will do when there's a lot of miracles. Remember, he's also picking up steam from that John the Baptist had created, too. There's a momentum John the Baptist created. John the Baptist was gathering crowds, too. Those crowds began to move towards Jesus. He began teaching and doing miracles everywhere he went. His teaching was accompanied and confirmed by miracles, which drew a following and created quite a stir. And what, so what follows in the Sermon on the Mount can be seen as Matthew recount his recounting of what verses 4 or chapter 4 verse 23 calls the gospel of the kingdom. It says he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel just means good news, right? So when you read gospel, just do a little translation in your head. It means good news. What is the content of that good news? Well, he's just about to tell us, okay? That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? So that's that key to understanding Starting with the Beatitudes all the way through, really all of Matthew is, he is giving us the content of that summary statement, the gospel of the kingdom, okay? That's how we understand it. You're also going to see Jesus' very interesting and tenuous relationship with crowds. <laughs> he didn't like them. He's always trying to get away from them. He doesn't trust it. He doesn't see a large gathering of people as a sign of him doing something right. He actually sees it as a danger, and he doesn't trust it over and over and over again. That's why sometimes he says inexplicable, difficult things and then doesn't, doesn't explain them. 
It's like, if I did that, y'all would be like, you're really not a very good teacher. <laughs> you say these, like, really complicated sentences that are, like, kind of offensive, and then you don't go, what I meant by that was, you just go to the next thing, and that's more offensive than the thing you just said, and it's just one thing piling on another, and I'm, everyone's confused. You need to change your teaching style, Ben. There's all these hidden messages that only a handful of people understand, and he, Jesus goes, yeah, I'm doing that on purpose. I'm alienating the crowd and teaching the people that are actually want to hear or have ears to hear. So let's start. We're going to start with the Beatitudes. Um, I'm not going to go through each of these individually. I'm going to talk about them in one sermon altogether um, this morning. So I'll read it. I'll pause a couple of times to explain a couple of um, confusing terms, and then we'll talk about the whole thing as a group. So here's Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so... First of all, recognize who he's talking to. He's not talking to the, enti- the multitude. He's pulled aside to teach his disciples. We don't know if it's the 12 or it could be more than 12, but it's this kind of the group who actually have ears to hear, right, the ones he's focusing on. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is not necessarily financially poor it could include that it's just downtrodden okay blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth meek just means it's it's hard to translate but it's the closest word is probably humble blessed are those who are humble but it seems to have something to do with how we treat other people okay blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is Jesus' opening message. It does not bode well when one of his first statements is, you'll be blessed when they persecute you on account of me. And they're going, wait, what are you talking about? Uh, You know, this is looking pretty good. You're doing a lot of miracles. Everybody's gathering around. We can build like a really big building and, you know, go on tour get a bus, you know, do some live streaming. It'll be great. This is, what are you talking about? Persecution. Everybody loves you. Jesus knows where this is headed already from the beginning. And he's saying, following me is not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to involve being persecuted. And notice he qualifies it on account of me, not because you're a jerk. But when you're persecuted because you're a jerk, well, that's on you. That's your fault. You are not blessed. All right? It's blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account. So these beatitudes can be hard to apply to ourselves, I think. Some people struggle, even though they're simple statements. You have to think about it a little bit. It'd be easy, I think, and I've heard it quite often taught this way, to turn them into these platitudes that you can put on a bumper sticker or on a T-shirt, and you sort of make them should statements or ought to statements. 
like, blessed, you're, you ought to be merciful so that you can receive mercy. Or you should be a peacemaker. And that is not the point of these verses. Those are true statements, but it's not the point of what Jesus is teaching here. Or the old preachers, and I hope I don't offend any preachers, if you've said this before, I just disagree with you, all right? The old preacher phrase, these are the B space attitudes. It's kind of a dad joke, preacher joke, all right? These, it, you should have these attitudes, and that's the point. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Though I think he would agree you should be a peacemaker, you should be merciful, you should be meek, you should be those things. Secondly, the, I think it's helpful to contrast these statements with how things actually are in the kingdom of the world. Like, look at this. In the world, is it typical that the poor in spirit inherit the earth? No. Or else they wouldn't be poor in spirit. Right? Things are not, if you are poor in spirit, things have not been going well for you. Do the meek typically, are they the winners? The people who don't fight for themselves who don't fight for their place and their voice to be heard, who defer to other people. Do those people usually the ones that are winning? No. Do the merciful typically win? No. Peacemakers, historically, peacemakers get killed, don't they? Or they end up in prison. Nobody likes, if we're honest, the world doesn't like a peacemaker. We put them in movies after they're dead or gotten out of prison. But at the moment, nobody likes the peacemaker who says, wait a minute, and steps in between people who are locked in disagreement and stands in the way. And sometimes you get, like they used to tell me when I was a teacher for a brief period of my life, never jump into the middle of a fight in the hallway at school. Why? Because you're going to get hit. And they be a, don't be a peacemaker, you'll get punched in the face, right? This is how the world works. So immediately when you, start, when you realize that, you start to recognize that Jesus is doing something more than just giving us a list, list of attitudes that we should adopt as Christians. He is doing something far more subversive than that, something far more radical than that when he starts listing these qualities of the kingdom. I think this becomes clear if you look at Isaiah 61, which Matthew loves quoting Isaiah and saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, this will be familiar to some of you. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I read that. And you put it over next to the Beatitudes, and you go, oh, wait a minute. Everything that Isaiah is prophesying would happen, Jesus is standing there saying, that's done. I'm doing that. In the kingdom of God, that 
is accomplished. The kingdom of God being at hand means at least Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled in the dude standing here talking to you, right? Not me being caught in Jesus, right? <laughs> the kingdom of God has not been fulfilled and been gotten, all right? So when you pair Isaiah 61 with the Beatitudes, I think you get a complete picture of the kingdom. Jesus is declaring to the poor, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted, that the one prophesied by Isaiah has come. The kingdom is at hand, and that's good news for those people. For the poor, for the broken, for the downtrodden, for the peacemakers, for the merciful. It's good news to them. That is who Jesus is talking to, and it's who Jesus came for. We see later in Matthew, I'm going to try not to spoil it too early. Like I think it's Matthew 7, where Jesus says, makes it very, very, very clear and plain, this, this point, where he says, I didn't come for the sick. I came, or I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the, for the sick, the great physician. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Those who are sick need a doctor, and I'm the great physician, right? I didn't come for the righteous or the already righteous, I came for the sinners. So the only thing you need to qualify you for the grace and the mercy of Jesus is that you actually need the grace and the mercy of Jesus. You have to be a sinner to get in. You have to be a loser to get in. So Jesus is standing here in his opening message. This is what the kingdom of heaven is about. This is what the gospel is. And then he says right off the bat, it is not for the winners. It is for the losers. And if you want to get in, you're going to have to hang with the losers. Count yourself among the losers. So that's another way to summarize, in my opinion, the Beatitudes, which is blessed are the losers. Who wants to be a loser? My hand's up. But here's the thing. It's, the good news is not just that we're just a bunch of losers. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? What a bunch of losers. Jesus doesn't leave us as losers. Because what does he say? He says, blessed are the losers. Not here, let's gather together as a bunch of losers and feel sorry for each other about how, what big losers we are. He says, no, 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 I am doing something to make you not a loser anymore. I'm gathering the losers, and blessed are you, right? So to quote the great prophet Alan Austin, who's not here this morning, it's loser plus Jesus equals blessed. That's kingdom math, right? Loser plus Jesus equals blessed. This is how things work in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the X factor that makes nothing into something. So he creates, he does a creative work in you supernaturally when you come to faith in him and begin to follow him as he converts you he creates something out of nothing he creates a blessed son and daughter out of a loser so don't be offended when i call you a loser the criteria in the world i think this really for me brings up this is very current for me this is how things work in the kingdom of god that Jesus takes losers, makes them blessed. And the criteria for the kingdom is that you be a loser, right? You have to be a sinner. You have to be sick to need a physician. 
But in the world, the criteria are constantly shifting with the times and with the group that you belong to. And that includes churches, okay? So don't be like, yeah, out there, because the world likes to infiltrate, doesn't it? The world's system of values likes to infiltrate. So think about this. I want you to really think about it. How do you signal to your group that you aren't a loser? Just think about your group of friends or your church or your socioeconomic group or your political group. How do you let everybody know I'm not a loser? What are the things you don't say or you don't look like or you don't do that would make you seem problematic to your group? For example, does a person's voting record determine the stat- their status in the kingdom of God? No. Obviously no, right? Then why is it so common for people right now to say things like, if you voted for XYZ candidate, then go ahead and unfriend me now? I've seen that. And people keep telling me that they have lost friends who told them you can't be my friend if you voted. And and it's across the board. If you voted for this candidate, you can't be my friend. And then another friend says, well, if you voted for this candidate, you can't be my friend. And everybody's going, well, you can't be my friend. It's like a bunch of three-year-olds having a pity party on the, par- on the playground. Well, you can't be my friend either. And that's what I mean by this, the value system of the world, the criteria of righteousness that the world tells us is constantly changing and shifting, and it has infiltrated our thinking in ways that we didn't expect, I think. You've gotten your value system confused if that's the way you think. So Jesus comes on the scene, right? And he flipped the value system of the world on its head when he said, blessed are the losers. He wasn't just giving us principles to live by. He was saying the kingdom of heaven is a whole different thing. And it works on a whole different set of values. Where the world says, the world at his time said, well, the poor, if you're poor in spirit, whether financially poor or depressed, it's because of something you did. Therefore, you are not as holy as the rest of us. And if, you're, if bad things are happening in your life, then maybe it's because you're such a terrible sinner or maybe it's because your parents sinned. If you don't have a lot to put in the offering plate, well, that's because you don't have enough faith. That's the value system of the world, and Jesus comes in and he flips the whole thing on its head and says, no, no, in the kingdom of God, it's different. And that is absolutely subversive. Being a follower of Jesus means that you are also living in that value-flipped kingdom. Some groups will say, well, you got to dress a certain way. And then you'll be valued. And other groups, like, well, you got to have a certain doctrinal perspective. You got to like certain authors. And you got to not like other authors. Like, who are the, like, in my world as a pastor, it's like if I mention a certain, certain authors, I have to follow it with a long qualification. 
I mean, I'm not saying every, I agree with everything they say, and this book is great. You kind of have to spit out the bones. You do this whole song and dance. Why? Why am I doing that? Because I'm afraid that I'm not signaling to the people that I'm talking to that I'm on their team and I'm in their club. And so we don't use certain phrases. We don't talk about certain people. We don't in a positive light. We don't criticize other certain people because we want to be seen as a winner and be seen as strong and as a true believer, right? It's dangerous stuff. If you follow Jesus, what you have done is you have joined the band of the meek, the poor, the persecuted, the peacemakers, and the pure in heart where the only thing that makes us great is our great king. That's what following Jesus means. And Jesus is introducing himself to us in Matthew 4 and 5 by saying, if you want to follow me, this is how you got to be. And every time the world kind of goes, hey, yeah, but also you really should be X, Y, Z, it's dangerous stuff. This is the theme of Jesus' ministry, by the way. It comes up especially clearly in Matthew 9. Yeah, I thought it was not 7. It's not. It's 9. Where Jesus plainly says that he came to call sinners, not the already righteous. If you're already righteous, meaning full of your own righteousness, self-righteous, then you have disqualified yourself for following him. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to let go of our own self-qualification. I think the problem, or one of the problems with American affluence is that it's so easy for us to forget that we actually are losers without him. When you can go, like, week to week, day to day, month to month, and kind of provide for yourself, where you're the one working hard, and you're the one getting the paycheck, and you're the one solving the problems and making it rain, right? You're the one doing the work, doing the thing, and you're doing really well at these different things, and nothing's going particularly wrong. When everything is going well, what is the, the danger in that? The danger in that is starting to think, well, maybe I'm not such a loser. Maybe I don't belong in that category. Maybe I really belong in the winner category. And that's not kingdom thinking. That's not a kingdom principle. That's why being rich is described in the Bible as so dangerous. Yeah, if you look up being rich in the Bible, you don't find much good things. It doesn't say it's a sin, right? But it's like fire. You collect a bunch, you start messing around with fire, it can do really great things right? Money can do really wonderful things, but it can also burn your house down, <laughs> right? It can also burn down your life. It can kill you, right? And so when we have money, it's like, you know, the, the government goes, hey, the answer is money. Let me send you free money, right? And you get a check in the mail, and you go, "Woo, problem solved. Is it really? No. We should look at those things like, this is a great tool, but could also burn down my entire life. 
what money is. You see, we live in an affluent place. Even the, the most broke one in this room, I don't know who you are. I'm not, I'm not making any eye contact with anybody, right? But the most broke person in this room is rich by world standards. And we're all in danger constantly of seeing ourselves because of our affluence and not recognizing that it's a sign of God's blessing on us. It is not a sign of our greatness. And so I'm often grateful for the moments when it's hard, when life is hard, because it reminds me I'm not the great one. <laughs> Even though I'm never grateful in the moment. It's later. I'm not that holy. Maybe years later, I look back and go, wow, that was good for me. It was good to struggle. Our wealth preaches a false gospel to us every single day. You need to recognize that. It's a false gospel. That's why generosity is important. It's not going to be a sermon about money. I'm going to stop. So why don't we pray together? I want to pray and ask God to... For all of us here in the room and those of us online, that the Holy Spirit would kind of do a, 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 an adjustment, a recalibration of our values. Um, churches include, I don't think we're exempt, churches are being threatened right now more by division than by anything the government can do. You hear that? Whatever you're afraid the government's going to do to churches. There's a lot of possibilities, right? Whatever that is, is nowhere near as dangerous as the threat of getting our values confused and becoming divided over stupid things, okay? And so I want to pray that this church, we would have our kingdom values set and we would recognize that Jesus has turned the tables on the world. And this is supposed to be a different thing. And so we just follow Jesus. I want to pray for that. And pray for the church across the country on the same thing. So why don't we stand up together? If you're online, you can stand up or, or sit down. I don't, I don't even know what you're doing right now, right? Or driving your car, or hopefully you're not on the toilet, but you might be, right? Hope it's going well. All right, anyway. Uh, I know what's wrong with me today, Gail. Let's pray. God, help us. God, I feel the, the, just the pressure of the world's uh, just totally messed up value system pressing in on the church right now. Not just Living Hope Church, but the body of Christ in this country. Pre just shouting a false gospel to her. Saying, if you just buy in to our values, you'll be fine. And God, we see the result of that in the world, just, just a horrible division. So God, I pray for your church that you would recalibrate us every single morning around the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. God, that we would recognize that, one, we are all ultimately losers. We are the weak, we are the poor, we are the meek. God, in you, because of you, we're blessed. Jesus plus loser equals blessed. God, I pray that we would rally around Christ in this season. And God, that you would use the church 
to be like a, a strange, miraculous stronghold that people can run into where the values are different. And the things that gather us together and bond us together as a family are different. God, a thing that would hold us together would be the gospel and nothing else. God, I thank you for preserving this church in this way. God, I pray for our city and our nation for the same thing. God, you would come and just it'd be like you would walk among the churches, purifying them and recalibrating them around you. God, help us to recognize the danger of our affluence and our peace and the ease in which we live our lives. God, help us to be grateful for it, to thank you for it, and to be a little afraid of it. God, that we would recognize the fire that we have and how useful it can be and how powerful it can be and how destructive it can be on us. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives to do this and to protect us in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Let me do a benediction for you this morning and get you out of here. Just receive this as a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. See you guys next week.